All right. How many are ready for a good word today? Say amen. Amen. Open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. We're so glad that you're here if this is your first time here. If you have been around for a while, you know that we have been in a sermon series on the book of Ephesians. It has lasted 19 months, and today is the 70th sermon. 19 months and 70 sermons. Today, for the grand finale, what I'll be doing is reading the entire book of Ephesians. I've encouraged you during the sermon series to read it once a week. I'm not going to ask you now if you've done it because I don't want you to lie in church. But that means you should have did it all of those weeks, about 70 weeks. By God's grace, I did it with only missing one or two weeks. I have to be honest, I missed one or two. I thought I had did it one week and then the other week just went by so fast. The series was named In Him because the phrase in Him or in Jesus or in Christ is used 27 times. We went through the book and all of the messages now are online at the website or on our app. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read through section by section and then bring about a summary so that you can see what each section means. If you're ready, somebody say, I'm ready. Now, if you're new to the church, let me just tell you, I generally don't read an entire book of the Bible on Sunday. So make sure you come back next week to hear a message that's more normal, what we're accustomed to. But I would say this to everybody, put yourself in the position of those who were getting the letter. These letters were called epistles because they were written by apostles to the church. Put yourself in that mindset, what would I be like? What would it feel like to receive this letter? from the Apostle Paul. He's in jail. He's writing to the church. Let's read the entire book of Ephesians. If you're ready, somebody say, I'm ready. Thank you. Galatians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. You see that phrase? You'll see it 27 times. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that we see here in the greeting is that Paul is the apostle. He's the one appointed by God to start churches. That's what apostle means. He's writing to the saints. That means holy people. That's literally what the word holy people means is saints or saints means holy people. It's the same Greek word, hagios. Saints aren't dead people. They're alive people in the church. They were a part of the church in Ephesus. That's a Roman city where Paul had traveled to as an apostle, and now he's in jail for preaching the gospel. So he's writing this letter. He says to them, grace and peace. Everybody say grace and peace. Grace and peace is the Christian greeting. I know that we are accustomed to saying, God bless you, God bless you. But the standard Christian greeting among brothers and sisters should be grace and peace. The grace of God is the forgiveness of God, and the peace of God means to have tranquility in your heart. It comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and it should mark every Christian's life. Let me just say this. Whenever you hear God the Father and the Lord Jesus, that does not mean that the Father is not also Lord or that Jesus is not also God. God. Jesus is God and the Father is Lord. It's just these two terms are designated by Paul from the Jewish understanding that the Father was God and that the Messiah was Lord. But the Lord that he's referring to Jesus as is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now that doesn't mean that there's going to be two gods or the Holy Spirit now three gods. It just means there's one God, one Lord, one Elohim, one Most High who is shared by three separate persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
So what I did in this part of the reading is I bolded any time we see a reference to the Trinity so that you'll be able to see that there are three persons who are all God and Lord. God and Lord are not separate beings. It's just different titles meaning the same thing, a divine being. Now, once again, there's not three divine beings. There's one divine being and three persons. That's the introduction. Now, Paul begins to praise God for the spiritual blessings. Look as I read this next passage. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This portion is going to be the most concentrated portion in the book of Ephesians within him or in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, somebody say in him. Thank you. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, somebody say in him. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ. Nudge your neighbor and say, you also. Come on, and you also, thank you, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now notice this first reference to the Trinity. There'll be nine references to the Trinity in the book of Ephesians, highlighted in blue. When you believed, you were marked in him, talking about the Son, Jesus, with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption of those who are God the Father's possession to the praise of his glory. I know most of us that went by so fast it was hard to retain it all. That's why in this section I spent the most amount of time preaching. There is so much depth in this section that we just hear at the beginning of Paul's letter. As a matter of fact, it's from this section that most theologians say the book of Ephesians is the most heavenly-minded book out of all Paul's letters. Romans is known to be the most theological, but because of this first chapter, he goes so heavenly-minded, if you're not with them, it just goes right over your head. You're just hearing a lot of run-on sentences. That's why during this time, I believe I preached about 14 messages just on what you heard. How would I summarize it, though? Here's how I would summarize. Everyone look up at me, please. Here's how I would summarize the great depth of those verses. The Christian is blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So everything we have is because we are in Christ, and that literally encompasses all the blessings will ever need. So everything we'll ever need is found in Christ. And so what do those blessings look like? It means we're adopted. We're no longer children of the devil. We're forgiven. All of our sins have been washed away. Did you remember reading that in that passage? We've been lavished with wisdom and understanding. And why are we lavished with it poured out upon us? It's because God wants us to know him and to understand him better. And we're sealed personally with the Holy Spirit. So we're protected from the devil and all of the outside influence by the Holy Spirit, and what are we waiting for? To go to heaven and to come back and rule and reign with Christ. 
And so that kind of gets into that second point, is that salvation was made before we were ever even created. The plan of salvation isn't an accident. When Adam and Eve sinned, God wasn't up in heaven going, what should I do? What should I do? When you listen to Paul preaching, he's saying this was predestined. This is a predestiny. God had it planned. And some people ask, well, if he knew Adam and Eve would fall, why did he create them anyway? Because God would rather have us choose him than to create robots that can never know and love him. So even though we rejected him, he gives us a second chance to choose him. So he knew the moment we fell, Jesus is coming to die for us so we can have a second choice. So the plan of salvation was made before the world was even created. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? And all we had to do, think about it, is believe. It says, you also were included in this, a plan of salvation, when you believed. When you believed, you were included. So all we have to do is believe and now remain in faith so that we can receive the inheritance, the redemption of our bodies. How many know we weren't made to live in heaven as a disembodied spirit? We were meant to live on earth in resurrected bodies. That's why Jesus had to resurrect. That's why he took on the new body after he had been crucified to show us eternal life. It's not just in heaven, but it's on earth. He's there waiting to come back. Now Paul gives us his first prayer here. And notice what his prayer is for. He starts off with greetings. He gives us this wonderful understanding of who we are in Christ. Now he begins to pray. Notice what he prays for. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people. So notice faith and love is your choice to have or not have. He says, I've heard about your faith and love, and now I'm praying for you. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. So does anybody here have faith in Jesus and love for God's people? Amen. So this is a prayer that Paul would have prayed for you and that I'm praying continually for you. And notice how it comes to the Trinity. Verse 17, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. What is the summary of Paul's prayer, the first prayer? He's going to have two in the book of Ephesians. What is the first summary of this prayer? That you may know God. That's what he's praying for. He's praying, man, I want you to know more about God. Stop acting like you know it all. Stop acting like you don't need to come to church or read your Bible and pray. Get your face out of Facebook. Put your face into his book. I want you to know him better. And how are you going to know him? Through God the Father, by Jesus Christ, the power of the Spirit. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to what he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. How many believe today? Then that means there's power on the inside of you by the Holy Spirit. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Do you notice that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that saves us and then will raise us from the dead. The same way that Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father is how now we're seated in heavenly places, blessed with every spiritual blessings. Because of what Jesus did, we have what we have. He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age or the one to come. What is the name above all names? What's his name? Jesus. Thank you. Verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So the church is very important. We now begin to see that God is using the church to fill the universe with his glory. So what's Paul's prayer? 
It's for the Holy Spirit to give us more wisdom and revelation for what purpose? To know Jesus. And then what's going to happen when you know Jesus more? What did he just say there? He said, when you know Jesus, what will you know? You'll know hope. Everybody say hope. You'll know a hope beyond the scope of human limitation. You'll have a hope that goes beyond the pain of this world. The second thing is you'll know the riches of the inheritance of God. Somebody say riches. You'll see how blessed you really are and what God created you for. And then everybody say power. Then you'll know God's power. The power is the strength to live for God. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So he prays that we will know God. And by knowing God, we know his hope, we know his riches, and we know his power. Now, what's awesome about Paul is that he stops right here and he takes a turn and he starts preaching the gospel to them again. Because remember, they had to receive it at one point to be saved and now they're actually in the church and he's already told them all the great things that they have because of salvation. But as a good preacher, he wants to remind them what the gospel is. What is actually the message of the cross? What does it mean to hear that message and be saved? And so now in chapter 2, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You used to be dead spiritually in the ways you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. So he says, beyond just their disobedience, the devil's actually at work in sinners' lives. Now he says in verse 3, all of us, somebody say all of us. He includes even himself, all of us lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So can anybody say, I sinned because the devil made me do it? No, the devil only leads and guides those who by their own fault choose to follow their flesh, their own deceitful desires and thoughts. So the devil throws out adultery to the man that's lusting. God, God is telling that man to get rid of his lust. He doesn't want to do it, but the devil says, I'll set a trap with his lust. So you have to see your sins can be used by the devil to be a trap. And that's exactly what he does by setting these traps for us. It gets to uh, our flesh by its desires and thoughts. So what do you want in sin is what the devil will tempt you with. That's why the devil doesn't tempt you with things you don't want, because it wouldn't be very tempting. So it says, like the rest, now watch, because we lived like that, we were basically in cahoots with the devil. We were by nature deserving of wrath. So it's not like anybody's good on the inside and just every now and then they make mistakes. No, because of this, we're actually sinful through and through. And whenever we do a good work, it's still covered in the sin of our lives. It would be as if I was helping somebody that was drowning and I was pulling them up, but yet I had anthrax on on my hands. Yes, I'm getting them out of the water from drowning, but now I've just poisoned them with anthrax. Every good deed we do, even no matter how well we justified is still stained with our sin we all deserve God's wrath but watch watch what Paul says in verse 4 but because of his great love for us God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions it is by grace you have been saved so the plan of salvation became even while we were yet sinners so Jesus didn't die on the cross because of our human potential God didn't love us because of what we could do for him he loved us when we were at our worst And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So where he is, we now get to be because of grace. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
For it is by grace you have been saved. Let's read verses 8, 9, and 10 together. One, two, three. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So what do we see when we look at that section that's probably the heart of the book of Ephesians, the gospel message? We see that though we were sinners, just like the people of Ephesus, and chose to live as sinners, Jesus died for us. Jesus died for sinners. No matter what you take away from the book of Ephesians, I pray you get this out of it. We were all sinners, but Jesus died for sinners. He didn't wait for you to become good. You don't teach a child arithmetic before they're born. You wait for a child to be born, then you teach them arithmetic. How many have heard that example throughout this sermon series? Do I teach my child how to read and write first, or are they born first? So what happens? Does a sinner learn to do good things first, or are they born again first? No matter what a sinner tries to do, they can't change themselves. It's like as if you have AIDS and you give your left arm a blood transfusion from your right arm. You're still sinful. So what happens? We are saved by grace even in our wickedness. Do you, take, do you clean your car, wash your car, and then take it to a car wash? No, then why are so many people trying to change their life to come to church? You come to church jacked up and let Jesus chain you first. Then change you after that. You come to Jesus first, and then you do good works. You're born again first, and then you do what a Christian does. You were a naughty sinner. But now you can be in the divine nature. I was born naughty by nature, but born again in the divine nature. And then what do we see? Are there good works to do as Christians? Absolutely. But it comes after I've been made the handiwork of God. Let me put it into you another way. Does somebody drive the Indy 500 before the car is made or after the car is made? So when does the Christian do good works? Before they become a Christian or after they become a Christian? After you get made God's handiwork. He literally makes you new and then says, now live for me. So can a Christian ever make an excuse and say, I can't keep the commands? No, because they've been made to keep those commands. Now, what's amazing about this, and most of us here don't catch it, it goes right over our head, is that this time the church was primarily Jewish, and Paul was breaking away from the Jewish colonies and the Jewish synagogues because they were rejecting the gospel and beginning to preach to the Gentiles. And a Gentile is anybody that's not a Jew. But what they began to do was the Jewish Christians began to persecute the Gentile Christians. So they thought of them differently, similar to what we would see with racism now. But Paul then takes time in this epistle to tell them Gentiles are just as good now as Jews because Jesus brings the both together. Why would that be important? That's important because Ephesus was a church primarily of Gentiles, people who worship false gods and practice witchcraft. So he talks about the gospel, and now he says, look at who the gospel affects. It's not just the Jewish people who come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and all of them. He says, therefore, chapter 2, verse 11, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision, and circumcision is removing of the foreskin from the male's genitalia on the eighth day by the Jewish priests and leaders, that was a sign that they were not like the pagans. So he says, you Gentiles, you were uncircumcised and called that and made fun of by the Jews who called themselves the circumcision. But that's only done by human hands. 
Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. So no matter what God they were worshiping, it was a false God. But now in Christ. Everybody say, but now in Christ. Say it like you mean it, but now in Christ. Amen. Because of Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Imagine hearing this for the first time. You've been being made fun of by those who call you pagans, by those who call you the uncircumcised. They, they have the, the promises of Moses. They know all the Bible stories. They know all the Sunday school stories. They've been circumcised, and they're trying to tell you, nah, 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 you're a pagan. You're from this nation. You're not from the blessed nation of God. And now Paul is saying, hey, forget about that. In Christ, you who are far away have been brought near. Watch this, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So what separated them? Verse 15, by setting aside in his flesh the law, somebody say the law, thank you, the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them, Jew and Gentile, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So why were there all these problems? It was actually because God set it up in the beginning to separate the Jewish people from the pagans by the law. Now, does that mean the law is bad? No, it came with 613 commandments by Moses. But what did the law teach the Israelite people? How to diet, how to have their priesthood, how to do all of these things. Now in Christ, those things do not matter. But does that now mean there's no more moral law that God says, hey, you know, back then I said thou shalt not murder, but I'm cool with that stuff now. No, and that's why when people talk to us in the homosexual community and they go, you guys go back to the Old Testament and pick and choose what we keep, what you keep. And we say, no, 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 that's what God told us to do. In one section it says, don't practice homosexuality, and then right below it it says, don't eat shellfish. Well, why is it we eat shellfish and lechon and pork, but we still say homosexuality is a sin? It's because these are the principles that Paul taught us. The ones that were dividing the Jewish people from the pagans were not the moral laws. That's why God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. They were not an Israelite nation, but they were judged because of their sexual perversion. You see, moral laws continue in Old Covenant and New Covenant. God's never going to change how he feels about homosexuality, how he feels about marriage, how he feels about murder, how he feels about children obeying their parents. That will never change. But what was needing to change was what made the Israelites a unique nation. They had a separate diet law. They couldn't even mix, mix two types of clothing together, like wool and cotton. They had to have it all wool or all cotton. Now, were those things bad? No. They were meant for a time so that the Jewish people would be a separate, pure people so that Jesus could come and fulfill the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now those regulations have been done away with in Christ. So do we keep the Jewish dietary law, yes or no? Do we keep the Jewish moral law, yes or no? Yes. Do we keep the Jewish civil law and stone adulterers and stone rebellious children? Yes or no? But do we keep the Jewish moral law? Yes or no? You see, every time you ask what we keep, we keep 
the moral law. Every time you ask what we don't keep, it's going to be the civil law or the priestly law or the dietary law. And that's why Paul was telling these Gentiles, hey, you don't have to be circumcised. And imagine how painful that would be to get circumcised as a grown adult. You know, Hey, you don't have to get circumcised and you don't have to change your diet. That's not important now. The peace came to you and look at how it came. Verse 18, for through him the Son, Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one Spirit. So because of Jesus, now Jew and Gentile get the same relationship. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but now you're fellow citizens. Can I get an amen from somebody on that? Now you're fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household. So there's no like stepchild. It's not like my real kids are Israel, but these Gentiles are my redheaded stepchildren. No, no. You are fellow household members with them. You are just as much a part of the family as they are. Verse 20, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole body is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, the Son, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God the Father lives by the Spirit. How would I summarize that part about Jew and Gentile? Check it out. Here's how I'd summarize it. When Jesus died on the cross, he destroyed the barrier of the law and made Jews and non-Jews one new humanity. So how many of you can trace your ancestor to being a Jew? You are from the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Raise your hand. So we have one person, Lauren. Let's give it up for our one Jew here today. God bless you. Now the rest of you raise your hands. Rest of you raise your hands. Aren't you happy you're included? You now are a part of the household of faith. There's no difference between you and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of the prophets, Moses, and etc. Therefore, what should you get out of what Paul is saying? Put yourself in those people's shoes. You're like, yeah, what do you get out of that? The Jew and the non-Jew are in Christ together, and now we're God's temple because they don't even need a temple to worship anymore. Remember, the veil was ripped in two when Jesus died on the cross. That means that now the access to the presence of God is directly face-to-face for every believer. The priesthood of the believer is what we are now, and the temple is in us. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives there. And how are our temples built? Are our temples built on enlotes and chicharrones uh, and tacos and burritos and pizza? Is that how our temple is built? No, our temple is built by what the apostles and prophets teach with Jesus as our cornerstone. Now he goes on to chapter 3, and remember, the original Bible never had chapters and verses. So he goes on, and he tells you, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. He says right here, I'm locked up. Why? Because I started preaching to non-Jews. Why were they upset with him? The Jewish people crucified Jesus because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. They didn't like that. Why did they arrest Paul? Because he said the gospel was for the Jews. Now, thankfully, today, Jews are getting saved all around the world. But the Jewish people were some of the worst persecutors of Christianity in the first 50 years. So Paul says, hey, I'm locked up. I'm in a Roman jail because I've been preaching to you non-Jews. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now notice he's going to talk about this mystery of the Jew and Gentile, that he was always there in the Old Testament. And if people would have took the time to look at the prophets, they would have seen this was already prophesied. It's not like God's starting a new thing. The new covenant that Jesus started there at the Last Supper, when he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which I give my body for, and that's the bread. He said, 
says you could go back and find that all the way back in the days of Genesis. Can I prove it to you right now? Can I prove it to you that what Paul's about ready to tell you is true? Because why should we believe Paul? If he says it, should we believe it just because he said it? No, we should believe it because it's true. Look at the first time God meets with Abram before his name is even changed to Abraham. This is truly the first Israelite. This is where God now separates him and says, you're going to be my special people. He says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. That's going to be the land of Israel. Now watch this. He says, I will make you a great nation, talking about making the nation of Israel great. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse you. And then watch this little part. And it's not just about, it's not just about you, Abraham. It's not just going to be about your folk. It's not just going to be about Israel. And... All hente, come on somebody, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So now here you see Paul, he says, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly about in the previous chapter. In reading this, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. What was the mystery? Which was not made known to people in other generations, as has been revealed by the Spirit, to, by God the Father, to the holy apostles and prophets. Watch it. What's the mystery? He's going to tell you the mystery right here. Somebody say, bring it. You want to see the answer to the mystery? This mystery is that through the gospel, and the word gospel there is good news or evangelion in the Greek, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. There it is. There's the mystery. Members together in one body and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given, through, given me through the working of his power. And although I'm, least than the least of all, though I'm less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone. Somebody say everyone. Thank you. Make plain to everyone the administration or the way it's going to work of this mystery. For ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose. How long has he had this purpose? Eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through our faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. So he says, don't be discouraged because it's been worth it. Paul was given special insight into the understanding on how God used Jesus to bring together both the Jew and the non-Jew into the body of Christ. It was there, but it was hidden from most of the people. So God gave him a special revelation through the mystery of the new human oh excuse me though the mystery of the new humanity was hidden in the prophecies of the old testament now it's revealed in the new testament and what is it it's by faith everyone can live by faith so think about it like this guys in the old testament the gospel was concealed in the new testament now it's revealed don't ever take that for granted because Paul is taking time to remind us of that. He starts off by giving us the greetings, and then he tells us how heavenly-minded we should be and to think about God in all these wonderful ways. And then he preaches to us the gospel, and he shows us it's for Jew and Gentile. And then what does he do now? He breaks into his second prayer. Now he says, because of this, i got to bow my knee for the before the Father. 
from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious glorious riches he may give you strength with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Look at this. He says, I bow before the Father and I pray in Jesus' name that the Holy Spirit can do something in your life. Do you see how prayer involves the Trinity? We pray to who? The Father in whose name? And who comes and answers those prayers? The Holy Spirit. And so Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now, what was the purpose of his first prayer? That you may what? That you may know Jesus. What do you think the purpose of his second prayer is? He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in what? In love may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide, come on, everybody stretch out, how wide, how long, how high, and deep is the love of Christ. Do it again. Wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So his first prayer was that you might know God. The second prayer is that you might know how much he loves you. Take a break on that and get it, guys. We're about halfway through. Come on. Settle that in your heart. Paul's biggest prayers for you is hopefully the same prayer that you're praying for your family and for this community. It's the prayer I'm praying for you, that number one, you would know God, and number two, know how much he loves you. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, and all God's people said, amen, amen. So what do we get in that second prayer? We get the, the deep nuggies of Paul's heart for us because Paul prays that God's people will have Christ dwell in their hearts through faith and experience the boundless love of God. And what happens when you experience the boundless love of God? You're filled to the fullness of God's presence, the Holy Spirit. You feel that there's not a lot of God's presence in your heart? I bet you it's because you don't experience a lot of God's love in your life. You don't believe how much he loves you. You ought to then pray that you can know how much God loves you. You feel like God's a million miles away from you? Chances are it's because you don't believe how much he loves you. Whatever doubts you're having today towards God, they're not doubts in the head. They're doubts really in the heart. If you would only know, and if I would only know how much he loves us, we would never doubt how close he is to us. And then think about this. Paul declares that we can have from God and will experience from God more than we can ever ask or imagine. Why is he doing that? Because heaven is greater than we can ever ask or imagine. No, it's not just that. The new heavens and earth is going to be greater than we can ever ask or imagine. No, it's not just that. The greater, the greater that we could ever ask or imagine is what God will do in us and through us in relationship with him. The greater that I experience with, when I say I love my wife more today than I did yesterday, that's not just because we have a bigger house. That's not just because we do more things. It's because I'm going to deeper depths of her love. See, some of y'all want God to bless you more so you can love him more. And he's saying, my blessings will never change the way you see me because I could give you the whole entire world and it still wouldn't be enough. That wasn't enough for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had the entire world and it wasn't enough. But if you have Jesus, you have everything. You won't worry about the other stuff. So some of you are saying, God, show me how much you love me by all the blessings you give me. And God says, I'll show you how much I love you by what I'll do in your heart. So switch your priorities around. See, Adam and Eve had the world, but they traded it, didn't they? 
God could give you the whole world. You would still trade it unless you really knew his love. But if you have his love, you won't trade it for anything in the world. Some of you all need to hear that today. He then continues on into chapter 4, and he reminds us again he's a prisoner. How many are happy Paul keeps reminding us? He kind of doesn't want us to forget where he's at. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So because you've been saved by grace, because God loves you, now live up to it. Live like you've been changed. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, this is the Christian creed. This is a creed in the middle of his letter. Everybody catch it. He says there's one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord who is the Son, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. How many remember when I preached on this creed? This is an early doctrinal creed of the church. There's one church, there's one Holy Spirit, one Father, one Son, one faith, one baptism, one hope. How many of you believe that today? If you believe that today, you will see God in you and through you and all that you do. And then he says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, he who ascended on high took many captives and gave gifts to people, gave gifts to his people. So when Jesus ascended into heaven, who were the captives he took with them? Those were the ones that were in Sheol or the grave. Jesus told a parable about this. There were two places you could go when you died before Jesus came. One would be called Abraham's bosom, a place of blessing. This is what we learned from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The, 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 uh, the Lazarus, the beggar, he's a godly man. He goes to Abraham's bosom. But the rich man was ungodly. He goes to hell. Everybody say hell. But guess what? Abraham's bosom or paradise isn't the throne of God. So when Jesus was in the grave, he descended, went there, got those who believed in the prophets, and then took them as his victorious, uh, as his victory, as his reward, the captives he won in the spoils of war, and brought them to the Father. And then they got to enter the presence of heaven. So Moses was not in the presence of the Father until Jesus came and got him from Abraham's bosom. That's why when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. So what did he tell the people that were in hell? We learn about that in Peter. Those during time of Noah's flood and all the rest of the wicked fallen angels, some of them were there. He said, what you rejected when you rejected man and prophets, you were rejecting me. Get ready for the lake of fire. Well, you'll get sent with the devil and his angels. But then he said to those who accepted him, to Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the righteous. What you've been waiting for, now come with me. You're my spoils of war. By him dying on the cross, he now gets to take them captive and bring him with them. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now when he did that, he promised that the Holy Spirit would come 40 days after, or 50 days after his resurrection, the day, uh, excuse me, 50 days after his crucifixion, 40 days, uh, 10 days after his assumption into heaven. So let me give you guys a timeline. Everybody track with me. Jesus was crucified on Passover. He then was with the disciples for 40 days, teaching them the kingdom of God. Then for 10 days, they waited in the upper room, and then came Pentecost. Pente means 50, 50 days after Passover. Does everybody get the clear understanding now? A few of you, everybody look up at me. What day was Jesus crucified on? What festival day? Passover, okay? How many days was he teaching the disciples after his resurrection? 40 days. And then after he ascended into heaven, how many days were they waiting in the upper room? 10 days. And what was the day the Holy Spirit was given? 
Pentecost, now you understand, he gave gifts. He gave two types of gifts, spiritual gifts, they're mentioned in his other letter, the nine gifts of the Spirit, and he gave five ministry gifts to build the church. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers. For what purpose? To equip his people for the work of service that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature believers, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The church is here to give you a job so that we can all do our job together and build the, the church upon the earth. How many want to build the church upon the earth? How many believe that the church is the kingdom of God upon the earth? Amen. Then you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. In other words, you'll stop buying horoscopes. In other words, you'll stop being a superstitious and believing in the chuchacabra or however you say that. You'll, you'll stop believing that you have to put salt over your shoulder. You'll stop sending money to the people on TV to get their holy water or a magic coin to put under your pillow. Instead, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Christ, the body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Let's say verse 16 together. One, two, three. From him the whole joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Get it? Before he ever talks about the family, he talks about the church. Before he ever talks about your job, he talks about the church. And he tells you, this is how important it is. Jesus died, rose again to give you these five places in the church, and they would serve you in the positions of elders and deacons. Paul said there's only two major positions in the church, elder, deacon. What do they do? What is the gift that they will have to give? Some will be apostles and start churches and be missionaries. Others will be prophets and speak on behalf of God to you. Others will be evangelists and go around and preach the gospel to the lost in the community. Then those will be shepherds who will shepherd and care for God's congregation. And lastly, there will be teachers who will break it down. Those five people have a job. And what is the job? To build up the body of Christ so that all of us are strong doing our part. Each one of us doing in our work. Somebody say, put in work. So why does Paul start with that Trinitarian creed? Because he wants to tell you what the church is built on. And then he explains how the descension and the ascension of Christ enabled the Holy Spirit to give the five-fold ministry gifts to the church. And then he names them off and tells you what their jobs are. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are there to equip the church for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up into the fullness of Jesus. Everybody say halfway through now, the first half takes the most amount of time, and this is what we call the heavenly-minded goodies. We've just gone from chapter 1, verse 1, to all the way to chapter 4, verse 16. As we've been learning for the last, uh, uh, the last 19 months, 69 messages, is that some people say you shouldn't be heavenly-minded because you'll be of no, no earthly good, but the Bible teaches the exact opposite. You should be so heavenly-minded, you change the earth for good. So what did you just learn, basically, in the first half of the book? You learned that you have an apostle that cares for you, that really wants you to have grace and peace. You've learned that you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, that there's a plan of salvation that went before even your mistakes. So before there was a sin problem, there was a sin answer in Jesus. You hear the prayer of Paul, which should be the prayer of every believer, which is, I want to know God. You then learned about the gospel there in chapter 2 and how clear it is, saved by grace through faith. 
not of works, lest anyone should boast. But you are made the workmanship of God, created new in Christ Jesus to do good works, which you planned before the world ever began. And then you learn what is the purpose of humanity for Jew and Gentile to be one in the church. And then Paul says that he prayed again that you would know the love of God, that you would always go through every day of your life experiencing the width, the length, the depth, and the height of God's love, expecting to see things greater than you ever asked or imagined. And that you would believe the creed of the Christians in which they gave their lives for, and you would see the church for what it is. It's not a brick building. It's not technology. It's not instruments. It's not microphones. It's people being built up into the body of Christ. The most intimate language Jesus could use for the church, church he does, he calls it his body and he calls it his bride. Now, what does he do to ensure that you don't just become so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good? What does he do to ensure that you don't just go meditate on these things in some mountain somewhere? He now gives you instructions on how to put your walking to your talking to make your beliefs be lived out. And he gives you instructions. Instructions for Christian living. Instructions for your family and your job. Instructions on spiritual warfare. And then he closes out the letter. How many want to be so heavenly minded you change the earth for good? Come on. I said, how many of you want to be so heavenly minded you change the earth for good? Amen. Now, guess what? The longest section I have to read is the instructions on Christian living. Why do you think that is? And guess what? It will take, I'm right on time, by the way. I've timed myself. I can do this in an hour. you got uh, 18 more minutes. Watch this. Why is it right now I won't even have to make hardly any comments because at this portion he straight up preaches to the people. Everybody can understand what Paul breaks down in his biggest section in the letter. And what it is, is how to live like a Christian. The moral laws of the Old Testament don't change. They come into the New Testament. And he shows you exactly how to do it. So yes, you may not be a Jew. And yes, you may not be keeping their dietary law and their circumcision and all of that. But you better be keeping them commandments that taught them not to lie, to steal, to commit adultery, to have sexual perversion, to be greedy. Come on, somebody. This is the Christian life for Jew and Gentile, in other words. Are you all ready? Some of you remember it because I preached 17 messages just out of this portion right here. You listen to it. Listen, and you tell me, as if what, tell me what it would feel like as if you were in Paul's church hearing it for the first time. Imagine you're in Ephesus right now. Come on, put yourself in their shoes. Your apostle's in jail. You haven't seen him for about a year. You get a letter that says this is what it's about. They would meet together daily. They probably read this letter almost every day to each other. What do you think they would do when they got to this part? Put yourself in those people's shoes. So I tell you this, Paul said, I tell you everything I've told you and insist on it in the Lord that now you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking, they're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They're ignorant. They have no godly understanding. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught. Somebody say, I was taught. Thank you. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. And that's the example he's going to use, to put off and put on. You were taught to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your mind. Where does it start? In your, in your mind. And to put on the new self. What is the new self created like? Created to be like 
Come on, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He said, I told you this. Don't you live like the Gentiles. Don't you think like them. Take off the old and put on the new. Put off the old and put on the new. Therefore, here he goes, boom, it's on now. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Where is he getting that from? Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not commit a, a murder. Come on, he's getting them from the commandments of God. Verse 29, the moral law. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now watch this. Get rid of all, say it with me, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice, any confusion, church. None at all. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Chapters don't matter, so now we're rolling into chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, get this, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's saints or God's holy people. Nor should there be, come on, say it, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Read verses 6 and 7 with me. 1, 2, 3, let no one deceive you, with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Boy, it doesn't stop there, though, but that's tight, but it's right. For you were once darkness. You used to be like this, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So what does it look like to be a Christian? You have goodness, righteousness, and what? And truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. How many know God sees every secret thing you do? And everything that's illuminated becomes a light. That is why it said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So if you were in this church or in in Ephesus or in here today, and you're doing these sins, and you're in darkness, and you're hiding, the Bible says, wake up, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live. Come on, somebody say, be careful then how you live. Amen. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Come on, go. Somebody go. Come on, aren't you glad you got it all now? I'm glad that's over. But do I ever forget it? That's how we live morally. Show me your life, and I'll ask you the question, does it line up with this? I don't care what Oprah said. The Bible said don't be deceived. Don't be partners with those who do these things. 
I don't care who does greed in a fun way. If it's greed, you're not getting in, entering into the kingdom of heaven. Live like this. There is no confusion, is there? It is crystal clear. So how should we look at it? In very simple summary, the Christian is to take off the old and put on the new because we've been made to live like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. We say, Pastor, what if I've done those things? Stop doing them and repent now. Change your minds. Change your stinking thinking. How would I summarize that list? And there's a smaller list in Galatians chapter 5 if you want to see it. Paul wrote a smaller list there. But how would I summarize all of those verses? Basically, the Christian life is free from sexual sin. So the only way Christians have sex is one man, one woman in marriage. That's it. Everything else is sexual perversion. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Yeah, but he never said anything about molestation either. Is it okay to molest somebody? The reason why Jesus didn't have to say anything about homosexuality is the same reason why he didn't have to say anything about child rape. Is because all of it's perverted. There's only one blessed sex in the Bible, and that's from the beginning, man and woman together in marriage. The Christian life is free from sexual sin. The Christian life is free from bitterness. The Christian life is free from foolish talk. The Christian is free from idolatry. The Christian is free from rage and letting their anger control them. The Christian is free from greed. The Christian is free from drunkenness. In other words, the Christian is free from evil. But has the Christian only taken off all the bad and now they run through the world naked? No, they've put off all the bad, but they've put on the Holy Spirit and are walking around with thanksgiving to God. They are walking in the righteousness of God. They've traded the evil for good. Can I hear an amen? amen? And now after that, he teaches us the order of the family. So submit to one another for Christ. So notice that submittance has to be for everybody. We're going to learn about husbands, wives, children, bosses, and employees. And what's the first thing we learn? Everybody is equal. Everybody submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. But now there will be order. There will be some bosses. There will be some employees. There will be children obeying parents, and there will be wives submitting to their husbands. But everybody, whether you're a boss or employee, uh, employer, everybody's living for Jesus. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. And everybody said amen. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. Husbands, now love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So wives are submitting to husbands and husbands are loving their wives. To present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their, own uh, love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. Notice the example. Notice the example. Christ is the church, and we all serve him. So wives, serve your husbands as you do the church. And, and the husbands, love your wives as Christ does the church. We'll look at verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That comes from Genesis. Guess who else quoted that? Jesus. That's why we know that the only blessed sex is in marriage. That is the foundation for all sexual behavior. Verse 32, but this is a profound mystery, not just man and woman having sex, not just two coming together and having one, but I'm talk, uh, becoming one, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Christ's divinity with humanity is the mystery of a man and woman coming together. There it's resolved and solved in Jesus. Why did we ever have sex to begin with? To give us an illustration of Christ and the church. 
However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Moving on now to children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Where does that quote come from? Honor your father and mother. Where does it come from, saints? Honor your father and mother. The Ten Commandments. Did he say stone rebellious children? No, we don't keep the civil law of the Jewish people, do we? But we keep the moral law, and what was one of the moral laws? Honor your father and your mother. Watch, which is the first commandment with the promise. That means when God was listing those Ten Commandments, the first promise that said, uh, the first commandment that said, if you do this, you'll get this as a reward was the one towards parents because if you do that, it will go well with you and you'll enjoy a long life on the earth and all the parents said amen. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So everybody get it. How's the family work? Everybody submits to Christ. Then the wives submit to their husbands. Husbands love their wives. Children obey their parents, and parents don't frustrate their children. Praise God. Now he goes into the social structure. And we talked about this during that sermon series, uh, during our sermon series about slaves and masters. This is not to be taken as the slave trade of the Atlantic time, the Atlantic slave trade of African Americans or the Arab slave trade or the tribal slave trades and the Aztecs and the Incas. This was a trade of slaves that the Christians had nothing to do with. And now as they found themselves as Christians, some to be bosses and masters and others to be slaves, they had to get along with each other. But notice how he talks to them. Notice this right here. He calls all Christians slaves of Christ. So the very fact that we can be slaves of Christ shows that there's redemption in these relationships. Watch this. Could I ever be the hoe of a pimp named Jesus? Could I ever be the hoe of a pimp named Jesus? You see, prostitution can never be redeemed in a godly example, can it? But how does God use the example of slaves and masters in a godly way? Because by itself, it's not wicked. There always will be some people in charge and some people working. And as you'll see how they had to treat each other, couldn't even be with threats, let alone to rape and to murder. Slaves, obey your earthly master with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as what? But as what? But as what? Slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, watch this, and masters treat your slaves in the same way. What is the same way as servants of Christ, as slaves of Christ? Do not what? Do not threaten them. So if I can't threaten you, does that mean I can't rape you either? Come on, can you rape somebody? If the Bible's told you you can't even threaten them, do you think the moral law of God would change and say, hey, I know I told you about not raping, but you can rape a slave. I know I've told you about not stealing, but you can steal somebody. Do you think the moral law of God would change, yes or no? No, and and what we call this in theology is redemption lift. The Christians are in a societal structure that it's not time to change and overturn, but they're going to use it for the glory of God and be different within it. That's why he says we are slaves of Christ. So masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So whatever has been done in the name of Christianity to make slaves, they are going to hell because they're disobeying the scriptures. Do you get that? Because you can't treat slaves any different than the way Christ treats you. Any husband, everybody look up at me, please. The same example. Any husband that's ever used the Bible to abuse their wife is going to hell unless they repent. Because you are to treat husbands, your wife, as Christ does the church. 
Hang in there with me, guys. We have a few more minutes. How would I summarize the section of family and job and work? Here, here's how I would summarize it. Everyone must live in humility before God and the family, wives submitting to husbands as they do to Jesus, husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church, children obeying parents and fathers not frustrating their children. What do we get out of slaves and masters to apply today? Bosses and employees should serve each other in humility because all Christians are slaves of Christ and will be judged without favoritism. Can I hear an amen to that? Now in the last passage here, he talks about being strong in the Lord because you're going to be tested in everything you've learned. So finally, be strong in the Lord, talking about Jesus and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Remember, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. We're protecting all that which God has already given us. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. You notice he's ending with spiritual warfare because after you've learned all this, you're going to have a fight on your hands to keep it. How many are going to keep the truths you've been given? Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm, therefore, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the belt of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray on all occasions. How many know prayer is a part of spiritual warfare? With all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And look at what he says. Does he say, pray for me that I can be released? No, he says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fiercely make known the mystery of the gospel. That mystery he was given before about you and Gentile being saved. For I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. How many want to be a soldier like Paul? Then put on the full armor. What do you put on? The belt of truth, the truth of God holding up your pants, the breastplate of righteousness guarding your heart, the identity of a Christian. Then you have your shoes with the gospel of peace. That means wherever you walk, you walk where God's will is for your life and the peace of God. You have the shield of faith, the word of God, which defends you from the attacks and the doubts and the fears and the temptations of the enemy. The helmet of salvation renews your mind. Knowing Christ here changes your thinking. And the sword of the spirit, the word of God, demolishes all the attacks you face. And how are you doing it? How do you actually do spiritual warfare? By praying on all different occasions with different kinds of prayers that you may be used, everybody look up at me, that you may be used to preach the gospel, that you don't give up, because even though Paul went to jail, he didn't give up. And the last words of Paul says, Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything. Band and altar workers, would you come please? Tychicus was the trusted leader that was given the letter that brought it to the Ephesus people. He says, he'll tell you everything that you may know how I am and what I'm doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody say grace. Come on, say it like you mean it. Grace. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Give it up for Jesus today. Was it worth it? 19 months, 
70 messages? Was it worth it? What did you get out of this church? This isn't a letter from an apostle written 2,000 years ago. What did you take away from this sermon series? Some of the last words are the most important words because we learn about Tychicus, this faithful servant who was willing to carry that letter from a man in jail to the people. I wonder how many of you now will carry this letter wherever you go. I wonder if Bertha will carry this letter to her job with what she's learned. I wonder today if the Swartzes will take this message and apply it to their life. I wonder how much the Riascos took out of this or Carlos. I don't do my job for the thanks or for the paycheck or for a once a year a pastor appreciation. I do this so that a church can grow up and know Jesus. Was it worth it for the Escovals to hear it 70 times for Adam, for Sadia, the Castellanoses? Because the last words of this letter to me mean everything. Are you going to love Jesus with an undying love? Is God going to really be more important to you than whatever you have to do when you walk out these doors? Is studying the scriptures, is what was shown to you over 70 sermons, is it convinced you enough for you to study the scriptures now on your own? Because if you were to ask me, how would I summarize the entire book of Ephesians? How would I put it together in a way that you would say, Pastor, what did you get out of 70 lessons, preaching it over and over again, listening to it on your bike, listening to it on your commute, reading it over and over. Pastor, what did you get out of it? This is how I would summarize it. But I can't speak it for you. I can only say it for me. This is what I get out of this amazing book, that God the Father sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins so that both Jew and non-Jew could be in an intimate faith-based relationship with the Holy Spirit sealed on the inside, becoming one new humanity that lives a life of good works and shares in divinity. I share in divinity today because of what Jesus did for me. I can do good works because of what he did. I can know the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all because of him. Would you close your eyes right now and ask yourself this question, am I born again? Do I know Jesus? Have I taken off the old and put on the new? If you haven't, when we dismiss, I'm going to invite you to come up here and find a prayer worker to pray with you so you can start a relationship with Jesus. If you're here today and you're a Christian, I want to ask you a question. Have you been living for Jesus? Have you been keeping those moral laws? Or have you fallen asleep in darkness and need to wake up today? Those of you who are knowing Jesus and living holy, one last question for your group. I want to ask you, are you running hard for Jesus like Paul was? 
Are you fighting your spiritual battle from victory and winning the battles that come against your mind? And are you ready to preach the gospel fearlessly in honor of an apostle who was jailed for you that you might have this word? Will you fearlessly proclaim it because you love Jesus that much? If you're in one of those three categories, which hopefully would be everybody, before you leave out of here, I want you to pray. And I'm going to give you 30 seconds to do so right now. And if some of you need to come forward, you can, just to have a prayer worker help you. But as I ask you to stand up in just a few moments, we're going to pray. Whether or not you need to know Jesus, whether or not you know Jesus but you haven't been living for him, or whether or not you just want to go bold, go hard for Jesus, we're all going to make that declaration today as we stand up. Come on, let's stand up together and raise up our hands and start to pray right now. Holy hands lifted up. What is your prayer to God right now? Is it a prayer to become a Christian, to be born again? Ask Jesus to save you. Say, Lord, I believe in you. I put my faith in you. Forgive me of my sins. If you're here today and you're a Christian, but you haven't been living like one, say, Lord, forgive me. Change me, helping me to realize my purpose. Help me to realize why you put me here. And if you're on fire today and you want to be used to preach the gospel on your job or wherever you go to your family, come on, start praying that God will use you. We're going to pray for a few moments, then we'll dismiss. Come on, pray right now, saints. Before you worship and sing the songs, pray. Are you going to live for Jesus? Are you going to take this message seriously? It's your turn. Never been closer to heaven. This song was written out of our study in the book of Ephesians because we're seated in heavenly places. You can't get any closer than this right here. You can't get any closer than your soul. And that's where God is right now if you're born again. Come on. Jesus, I've never been. That better be your confession today. Or you need to pray. Come on, I've never been. worshiping we're not in a hurry but as i dismiss those who have to go listen to me before you go would you read the book of ephesians one more time check over our notes and make sure you get it this week because this is my prayer for you that you'll know what god's revelation was in that book in jesus name and everybody said amen can you give it up for jesus today